All right, well, open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians. We are taking a, almost like a two-month break from the book of Isaiah, and we are going to go through uh, 1 Corinthians 15 for the next three weeks, and then a couple other texts after that leading up to Easter, um, because I think it's very important. I was, somebody was, saw me in Starbucks yesterday asking me, hey, what are you teaching on? a fellow pastor from another church, and I said, oh, I'm teaching on the resurrection. He's like, oh, you're a little early. I'm like, well, you know what? Actually, you know, if you think about it, when we do Christmas, we start like way ahead of Christmas, and we make Christmas a big thing, and I kind of want to counterbalance that with, you know what? There's something even greater than Christmas. If you think about it, it's the resurrection of Jesus, right? It's kind of like he said, oh, the bookends. You have the birth of Christ and then the resurrection of Christ. And so I kind of want to help bring the excitement back as we gear towards that day where we celebrate the Lord's resurrection. So, uh, so turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to start a series called The Resurrection of Jesus. And the morning of this title's message is The Foundation of Our Faith. And as I was thinking about this, if you think about what is a foundation, you look up the definition of foundation uh, in the dictionary, and it says it's a basis upon which something stands or is supported. It's a fancy way of saying there's something that holds up everything else. You know, or it's an underlining base of support. Uh, my father was a, a cement uh, mason, and he laid concrete. Um, and there were a few summers in high school that I worked with him, and it helped me to realize that I don't want to be a cement mason. I think he did that on purpose so that I'd go to school. I was like, I'm going to school. I'm not doing this the rest of my life. This is tough work. But the reason I tell you that is, is he laid concrete, and he did big tilt-ups, like warehouses. And the first thing that they would lay is the foundation, the concrete, because that's what holds everything else up. Uh, they didn't put the walls up until the foundation was laid. And so they spent a long time doing that, making sure it was flat and even and measured. And that's really... Um, important in all things of our life. And we don't have a firm foundation, whatever we do, when something bad happens or, or calamity comes or tribulation, as Pastor John said this morning comes, everything's going to fall. If there wasn't a firm foundation for the concrete, then those walls would fall too easily. And that holds true even in our own life, in our Christian faith. But let me ask you this question. What is the foundation of your faith, your own personal faith that each and every one of you profess to have in Christ. Have you ever thought about it? What is that foundation that holds it together for you? Is it your, your sincere belief that it is true? So in one sense, it's your own personal faith. Like, I just know it is true. And that's what your whole faith is based upon, your own foundation, your own sincerity. Maybe that's it. Or maybe it's that you trust those who believe in it. Maybe there's somebody in your life, especially for kids for the most part, you, their parents trust this. Their parents believe in it, so they do it as well. You know, my parents wouldn't mislead me, you know, willingly mislead me. Or maybe somebody in your life that you trust or you look up to, your basis of faith is them and not really the Lord God. It's like if they believe it, they've gone through it, you know, there's probably some truth that I'm going to hold on to it, some exterior authority other than yourself. And that's the foundation of your faith. Maybe it's that, hey, you know what? Everything's going great, so God's blessing me. 
life is good, works good, relationships are good, and so that's the basis of my faith. As silly as some of those might sound if to you, that is the reality of a lot of people, right? They're, they believe it. That's why they trust it. It's a sincerity. But you know what? People can be sincerely wrong as well. How many other people in other faiths are sincere about their trust in what they believe? And what about when you trust in others and they fall? And then you're like, hey, maybe this isn't true after all. You see that your foundation wasn't secure. And maybe when things go bad in your life and then you realize that you stop trusting God. As Pastor John said, you kind of retreat. You know, things aren't going well anymore. I'm I just not going to church. I don't believe it. God didn't do this or this for me. God didn't help me with my sickness. God didn't get me that job that I was praying for. You know, God made my parents split up or didn't save my parents' marriage, whatever the case may be. Is that what your foundation for your faith is built upon? Well, in this morning's text, the Apostle Paul is going to remind the church what the foundation of their faith should be. And so let's look at that this morning. Let's read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 19. So I'll read through them, then we'll come back and find out exactly what he's talking about. And then at the end, obviously, make some application for our life. So the Apostle Paul writes to the church, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, and most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And the last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also." For I am the least of the apostles, whom I am not, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all of, my, of excuse me, we are all 
of all men most to be pitied. And so there the Apostle Paul writes again, as you can see, what is the firm foundation for the Christian faith? So what does the Apostle Paul say is the firm foundation of this faith for the church? If you didn't catch on, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, which includes the resurrection of Jesus. So how is the resurrection of Jesus the foundation of our faith? Well, let's go back to the text and look at it and analyze a few things that he says. From the very beginning, he is going to tell the church the most important thing for them, the foundation is the gospel. And again, within that gospel, part of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 1 once again. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. So he's reminding them, not making it known for the first time because this is a church But he's reminding them, he's reassuring them in some sense, and maybe some he's correcting a false assumption, which we'll deal with in a few verses down, about the truth of the gospel. And maybe even some of them in the church are at this crossroads, because as you could, if you heard me read earlier in the text, there's some people that are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. So what's happened is there's people in the church who have lost loved ones, friends, family members, and they're being taught or their understanding is that they're dead, they're lost for eternity, they've perished. And so the Apostle Paul is reminding them of the foundation of their faith. And part of this is that the gospel truth and the reality of it is what they need to believe. So he says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. So the reason the resurrection is the foundation of our faith is, number one, it is part of the gospel. It's the gospel what the Apostle Paul is preaching to them, right? It's nothing new. It's not a new teaching to them. They have been taught this before at the foundation of the beginning of the church in Corinth. They learned about the gospel. And so he's reminding them again. Secondly, it's something that they have received. He's like, you guys have received this teaching before. You believed it, this gospel, not only that, he says, uh, not only do you, uh, have you received it, but you also stand on it. It's your foundation. You're firm, but you're rooted in the gospel. This is what you stand on. Not only that, verse 2, he says, you are also saved by it. This gospel that you guys are denying, he's telling them, by not believing in the resurrection is the very thing that has saved you. And for some reason, you've lost your way, in a sense. So the foundation of our faith is, the reason it's the foundation of our faith is, one, it's part of the gospel. If you continue on, look at verses 3 and 4 now. He says, For I deliver to you as of great importance. Now he's going to break down the gospel for them. This is the simple gospel in verses 3 and 4. He says, I deliver to you as first importance what I also received. So he's received this teaching from the other apostles and from Christ. And this is it. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. The reason the resurrection is the foundation of our faith, number one is it's the gospel. And number two It's a central doctrine of Christianity. Christian church is the only one that believes in these three things, that Christ died for our sins, 
that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. And if you notice something, he says that this was predicted in the Old Testament. The Old Testament actually predicts the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verses 3 and 4, he says twice, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. And if you remember, the New Testament that we're reading at this moment in 1 Corinthians is in the process of being written as the Apostle Paul is teaching this. So when he says in the scriptures, he's referring to the 39 books of the Old Testament. He's saying the Old Testament scriptures, wasn't the Old Testament at the time, but the scriptures predict that this would happen. Now, if you're like me, and you maybe you have a study Bible, you're like, okay, let me find the scriptures in the Old Testament that says Jesus Christ is going to come, he's going to die, and he's going to raise again on the third day. Well, guess what? There's nothing in the scriptures that says that just like that. So if you're like me, you're like, well, then why does he say this? He says it's in the scriptures, and it's not in the scripture. Was he lying? Is this whole thing made up? What is he talking about when he says it's in the scriptures? Well, the scriptures, if you remember, again, 39 books of the Old Testament were not written by one person. They're a collection of books written over hundreds of years all over the place. And the reason they are put together is because they all point to one central theme that God is the creator of the universe. He's working his redemption towards his people through a Messiah that is coming. And all the books of the Old Testament attest to that fact. And so when he says scripture, he's not referring to one verse. He's referring to the entire message of the Old Testament, that it points to or alludes to this very thing. Now, let me give you some examples of this where New Testament writers use the Old Testament to explain what's happening in the New Testament. So in order to make that understandable, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke and look at verse, uh, chapter 24 and particularly verses 25 through 27. So in Luke 24, it's a very famous passage that you guys are all aware of, where Jesus is, uh, comes upon two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And in verse 24, this is what he says. Excuse me, verse 25. As he's asking, hey, what's going on? What are you guys talking about? They're saying, are you the only one in the area that hasn't heard what's happened? You know, the, that Jesus has died, was crucified. And look at what he says. And he said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. So all the prophets mean the Old Testament here. He says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer those things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, those would be the first five books of the Old Testament, and with all the prophets, this would be the remainder of the Old Testament, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. So Jesus took them on an overview of Old Testament scriptures, showing them that this was prophesied. Jesus himself is saying this was predicted in the Old Testament, and he showed them where in the Old Testament or how this was to be. A lot of times the Old Testament alludes to or foreshadows things in anticipation of the Messiah. And so Jesus did that. He took Old Testament stories and showed them how they are interpreted in such a way that they predict the coming of the Messiah. The Apostle Paul did this early on in his ministry. If you go through the book of Acts, he would go into the synagogue and reason from the scriptures 
about Jesus' ministry as well. And you can find that in the book of Acts. I read a book earlier this year. It's called The Unfolding Mystery, Discovering Christ in the Old Testament. And I would, if, if you kind of under, want to understand how the Old Testament talks about Jesus, I would recommend that book. It is a, it's, a, it's a thin book. It's, it's right here. It's real thin, see? And uh, it's, it's almost like, I don't want to overdo it, but it's almost like being on the road to Emmaus where this author goes through Old Testament sh- stories and shows you Christ in the Old Testament. It is really, really good. So I highly recommend that. Um, I won't let you borrow my book. Um, if you know me, I have a hard time letting go of books. But I will, uh, I'll buy it for you. How about that? I'll do that instead. So, sorry, Mindy. I'm going to buy some books if anybody's interested. <laughs> Just kidding. I'll let you borrow it. But I will know you have it, and I will be asking for it. <clears throat> Anyways, sorry. A little sidetracked. Where was it? Oh, yeah, so the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul would reason through the Old Testament Scriptures, showing them Christ, the Messiah, in, in the Old Testament, how he came to accomplish the death, burial, and resurrection, and what that meant. And so um, that's what Jesus was doing here. Not only that, the, if you go to the book of Acts, and I'll just go a couple books over to the right, in Acts chapter 2, Look at verses 24. I want to read this, 24 through 36. The Apostle Peter does exactly what I just talked about. We talked about how Paul went through the Old Testament, how Jesus went through the Old Testament. Here's an example of that being done in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 24. The Apostle Peter is going to explain this. He says, starting in verse 24, he said, And God raised him up again, so he's speaking to the people out in in the, uh, in the public area, proclaiming the gospel. This is Peter's sermon. He says, And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in power. So he's talking about Jesus' resurrection. And then he goes to the Old Testament. Look what he says in verse 25. For David says of him, says of who? Says of Jesus. David's the king from the Old Testament. So he said, Dave, And David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. That's a reference to the resurrection, right? The Holy One is the Messiah, and he's saying, God was predicting in the Old Testament that he's not going to let his Holy One decay in the grave. That's what that's saying. In verse 28, he says, Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou will make me full of gladness with thy presence. And look at what Peter goes on to say. He says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his, and his tomb is with us to this day. He's saying, This scripture isn't talking about the resurrection of King David because you guys know his tomb is here today. We could go over there and he's in it. And look at what he says. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out forth this which you both 
see and hear. And so that's an example of the Apostle Peter taking an Old Testament story and showing them how it predicts the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's no doubt that this is what Jesus did with the, with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And so that's why Paul can write that this is prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. So the reason this is the foundation of our faith, again, just outlining it here, is that the resurrection is part of the gospel. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. It is a central doctrine of Christianity. If you are a believer, it is what you are called to believe, and I'll show you that in more detail in a moment. Right? And it was predicted in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, if we look at some scriptures from the New Testament perspective, Jesus himself preached his resurrection to the disciples. Let's go to the Gospels here. A couple, just let's do one scripture. Go to Mark chapter 9. Look at verses 31 through 32. Mark chapter 9, verses 31 through 32. So here Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says this. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, look at what he tells them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. So here's just one scripture. We could go to a few others, but for sake of time, we won't. I think you get the point. Jesus himself predicted that he was going to die, be buried, and rise again. He constantly told his disciples this. And he told them, hey, I want you to know this because when it happens, it's going to demonstrate to you that I'm, the, that I'm God, that I'm the Messiah, because only God could do this. Right? You're going to know that. You might not understand it at this moment, but when it happens, you could base your faith upon it. And that's exactly what they did. Not only that, the, the disciples themselves continued to teach this. And this is what we have in the New Testament. For example, turn to, uh, let's go to one more verse in 1 Peter chapter, tw- uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. Here's an example of the apostles themselves teaching this doctrine of the resurrection. He says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. It's exactly what I'm trying to tell you this morning, that the reason for the resurrection, the Apostle Peter is saying, is here so that you will put your faith and hope in God. This is how God demonstrates who he is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Since the resurrection is part of the gospel, since the resurrection is, part, is taught in the Old Testament, since the resurrection is taught in the New Testament by Jesus and his apostles, it is part of our confession today as a Christian church. Matter of fact, in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, the apostle Paul writes this. He goes, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart. Now, this is important. Look at what he says. So it's not only confessing that Jesus is Lord, you must believe something as well. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Again, part of the gospel, the Apostle Paul was telling us, is to believe 
that Jesus came and died for our sins, was buried and rose again. And that's part of our confession. He says, if you're saved, you have to believe that. It's not an option for believers to go, you know, I believe in God, but I don't believe that God rose Jesus from the dead. Then you don't truly understand the gospel, nor are you a true believer. And that's something for each and every one of us to think about. Do you truly believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? The scriptures attest to it, and the Apostle Paul is saying this is the confession of faith that you must believe. Now, if you have a hard time believing that, obviously I, I would encourage you to continue to, to press into the scriptures, into the Lord, and maybe you want some evidence, I would um, refer you to an introductory teaching series that we did last week. And I say introductory because I'm no authority on the resurrection. But we did about, I think it was a four or five week series on evidence for the resurrection. And you could go back on our podcast and listen to that. Or there's many books that you can have, not from my, my library, but from the bookstore, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ for evidence. But for time's sake, we, we did that series last year. And uh, it was, uh, I enjoyed doing it. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it as well. So let's go back to our text in 1 Corinthians. So, this is our confession of faith. Since all these things are true, since Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, Paul makes some connecting conclusions in the text about that, uh, which are also foundational aspects of our faith, things that we believe because of the resurrection. Now, although these are presented in negative form in verses 12 through 19, we're going to kind of flip them and take the positive side of it, what, he's, what the antithesis is of it. So in verses 13, 16, and 18, we're going to cover this quickly. Uh, the Apostle Paul is saying that because Christ rose from the dead, that it assures that the believers will rise from the dead, that you and I, those of you who trust in Christ for salvation, because Christ rose from the dead, you too will rise from the dead. See, in verse 13, he says, But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. So we're taking the opposite of that. If Christ did rise, or since Christ did rise, that means you will rise as well. So when time comes that you and I pass away, if Christ doesn't return to them, there's going to be a point in the future, and the next few chapters, our next few weeks, we'll talk about this, where you will be called up, resurrected in a new body, to rule and reign with Christ for all eternity. See, they were saying, you know what? Our loved ones are gone, they're lost. They believed in Christ, but they're not going to rise again. The Apostle Paul is saying, no, if Christ rose, then those people will rise as well. So our loved ones that have gone before us who trust in Christ, this is the assurance. I don't like to say hope because you're like, you know, crossing your fingers, hope. This is the assurance of each and every believer that we will see those who've gone before us who've trusted in Christ, we will see them again. That's an awesome truth and an awesome reunion to look forward to. So not only does Christ's resurrection assure the believer's resurrection, it also validates all the teachings that we study in the New Testament. It validates all the apostles' teaching. Look at verse 17 for a second in our text. He says, For if Christ, if, for if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are in your sins. And then drop down to verse 19. Oh, no, that's 
that's the wrong verse, sorry. Go to verse 14 and 15, sorry. So he's talking about the, uh, validating the apostles' teaching in verses 14 and 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. So he's saying, if, if Jesus really didn't rise again, then what we're teaching you is just, it's worthless. It has no weight. It has no meaning. That's why later on in the chapter, and we'll study this next week, where he says, you know what? If the dead don't rise, it's actually in verse 32. You can flip there if you want. He says, if the dead don't rise, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He's saying, if Christ it hasn't been risen from the dead, then what we're doing here is just is worthless. We should be at home doing something else. It's if Christ didn't rise. So it validates the teaching of the apostles that say Christ did rise. Therefore, there's some meaning in what we're doing here. So the resurrection validates the apostles' teachings. Not only does it do that, it also validates our faith. That was the verse I read earlier in verse, um, look at verse 17. Again, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, again, then, then what we believe is a waste of time. There's no truth to it. We're, we're, we're fooling ourselves, so to speak. And the apostles are fooling us. The whole thing is a joke. That's why everything rides on this foundation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's that firm foundation that everything is, is tied together. And over the next few weeks, we'll study that. Because Christ has risen, our faith is vindicated, and everything that we learn about is true. The atonement, the justification, the forgiveness of our sins, us being raised from the dead, our loved ones being raised from the dead, is all based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't true, then everything is worthless and meaningless that we're doing. You see that the Apostle Paul, he puts everything on it, and we need to do that as well. Finally, he says in verse 18, the foundation of our faith is the resurrection because it assures that our sins are forgiven. In verse 18, he says, then those, uh, verse 17, and if Christ has not been risen, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then our sin is not forgiven. We are stuck with our sins. There's no triumph over anything. Matter of fact, I want to show you one more verse in Colossians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul drives this home about Jesus' death and resurrection and how uh, it applies to us. I, I love this verse a lot. Uh, Colossians 2, look at verse 12. And speaking of, of Jesus' death on the cross, he says this. And he's talking about believers having been joined with Christ in death and resurrection. He says, And having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him up from the dead. He says, And when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all transgressions. And look at this in verse 14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile towards us, and he had taken it out of the way and having nailed it to the cross. So the picture is this. Here's this long laundry list of each and every one of our sins. Everything we've done against God. And what does Christ do? He puts it, on, he puts it upon himself on the cross, nails it to the cross, and says, I forgive you of all of it. Not because of something that you did, but because of what Jesus did. 
That is a great truth because none of us can atone for all the things that we have done or the things that we will do. But Jesus has already done it. Look at it again, verse 14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. That's what forgiveness is. He forgave us of all of our sins. He nailed it to the cross. It's done with. It's over. And it's vindicated because he rose from the dead. The, the Apostle Paul in Jesus himself pins everything on the resurrection. So what do we do with, with knowing all this? Again, the Apostle Paul started saying, he, I want to make known to you, brethren. He wanted to remind them of these truths. Again, because maybe some doubted. Maybe some had lost their way, or maybe some need assurance of these things. And maybe that describes one of you today, or one of those describes you today. Maybe you need to be reminded of these truths. Maybe you're at a crossroads in your life where you don't really know what's true and what's not, or, or you're thinking of or checking you know, Christ out and, and so to speak, of following him. Maybe some of you need hope. Things have gone south in your life. So what do you do with these? These, this knowledge. Well, let's go to the very last verse in 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to talk about this for, I'm sure this will be some application in the next few weeks over and over again. But this is the culmination of the entire chapter on the resurrection. And it's good for us to be reminded of this as well. So what do we do with this knowledge? Look at verse 58. This is the conclusion of his teaching on the resurrection in, in chapter 15. He says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, so here's three things, or two things for us. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So because the resurrection is true, the Apostle Paul tells them, be steadfast and immovable. That means don't let anything move you or push you off that foundation of your faith. No matter what comes in your life, be immovable, totally dedicated to God. Don't let the, the winds and waves or tribulation of this world blow you off that truth. No matter what happens in our life, Jesus Christ has still risen from the dead. You are still saved, you're still forgiven, and you too will one day raise from the dead. So he says, let nothing move you from your faith in God, no matter what happens in our life. Secondly, he says, always, ab always be abounding in the work of the Lord. So what does that mean to us? That means we need to continue to serve the Lord in our church, right? No matter what happens in life, don't stop serving God. Don't give up. Don't let it knock you off what you've been called to do. Because your service has an eternal significance in this church, in somebody's life. Don't let frustrations or momentary setbacks stop you guys from serving God. What greater joy can there be than serving one another within our church? Right? You get to encourage each other. Every Sunday that we get together, we get to encourage each other, pray for each other. You know, Whatever ministry it is you are in, or even throughout the week, we could come here and we strengthen one another with our faith. We bear one another bur burdens. We come here and share people, hey, we're hurting, we're suffering, can you pray for me? Where else are you going to get that? When you isolate yourself, you don't have anybody praying for you, being there with you, 
letting, giving you a shoulder to cry on. We need to grow in our faith together. And one final point of application is found in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And I had already mentioned this. In the face of death, in the face of death, we should comfort one another with the reality of the resurrection. This is what the Apostle Paul is teaching to the church in Thessalonica in this scripture. He says this, But we do not want you to, to uh, be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the triumph of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And there's the application. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. What greater comfort can you give somebody who's grieving, who's lost a loved one? You know what? They've died in Christ. You're going to see them again. We'll get to hold them again, talk to them again. Not only will you see Jesus, but you'll see those who you love. I'm all for that. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. And even more, we thank you for the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, who validates and vindicates your word. All those things that we sing about and pray for are only possible because you have rose from the dead, that you are God, that you do what you say you will do. And even though we might not understand it or know when it's going to happen, we can trust in you because you rose from the dead. I pray this morning, Lord God, if there's anybody in this room that needs comfort from those words, that you would give it to them. If there's anybody in here that needs to be reminded of the truth of the gospel, that you would remind them, that you would open up their eyes, soften their hearts, and open up their ears, that they might hear what you say to them. If there are those who have never trusted in you, Lord God, I pray that you would call them to yourself at this moment that they would realize that maybe they didn't truly understand the gospel. Oh, they know that you're God, that there is a God, but they didn't know that he died and rose again for them. I pray that they too would come to receive you this morning and they would rejoice in these promises and these assurance of the resurrection and that they too would be forgiven of their sins and they too know one day they will live for you for all eternity. And for those of us, Lord God, who have lost loved ones, may we be reminded that we'll one day see them. We look forward to that day. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.